Hello there, listeners. Uh, just whilst we're getting set up, would you all like to hear a little joke? Hmm. Okay, what joke shall I do? Oh, you know how Joe's research is all about the Bronte sisters and contagion. Shall I do a joke about that? Okay, I'm going to do a joke about that. Shall I, Joe, I'm going to do a joke about the Bronte sisters. Is that okay? Go on then. Okay, so here goes. You know how in the olden days everyone was dying of consumption all the time, also known as TB or tuberculosis? Um, well, not everyone was dying of it all the time. Some people died of it once. But you're familiar with yeah. consumption, the flattering malady. It's not a flattering malady. <laughs> Nobody ever said that. Well, okay, they did, well, but they didn't mean that. Okay, well, here's the joke. So Just, you know we always how, need right. context before a joke. <laughs> you do. So you know how... That's how you know it's going to be a good joke. Yeah. So you know how Charlotte Bronte helped everyone out when they were struggling to breathe I with consumption? I was not aware of any way in which Charlotte Bronte helped everyone out when they were struggling to breathe. No, but... Um, well, in this joke I've made, she did. press yeah, yeah. So towards she, your... Charlotte Bronte helped everyone out when they were struggling to breathe with consumption by creating air as in Jane Eyre but it's a a play on air as in what you breathe so what that was a nice one that was a Whoa, whoa, whoa. Joe Ward just smacked the shit out of me ladies and gentlemen get my research out of your fucking mouth whoa dude it was a Jane Eyre joke. Keep my research out of your fucking mouth. I'm going to. Okay. <laughs> that was uh, the greatest cold open in the history of podcasting. Well, that was a joke, listeners. I mean, the bit about the pretending to do a slap. Um, I'm sorry if that was disturbing, but thank you very much for my award for best podcaster of the year, which I accept and which no one will try to take away from me. I should say the the slap bit was a joke. The bit about Jane Eyre being a cure for TB was piss poor. I've seen better jokes written on on a penguin wrapper. (laughs) (laughs) What's a penguin's favourite Bronte book? Penguin Eyre. (laughs) Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. That was, it was indeed, of course, just a joke, and perhaps at the time of listening, an already very dated one. But it does set up something that we'll be talking about to our guest for this episode, which is that idea that is the idea of rage. Yes, specifically satirical rage, which isn't really the specific kind of rage exhibited in the instance we were just alluding to. But it's our podcast, and if you don't like it get our podcast out of your fucking ears <laughs> yeah yeah um and what is this suddenly very aggressive podcast that people are listening to joe uh this is the podcast that is the podcast smith and war talk about satire or sawtas as the kids are calling it upon which or in which me we me dr joe war senior lecturer in 19th century literature and you dr adam smith senior lecturer in 18th century literature talk about the form function future and history of satire in a desperate bid to slake our inconsolable rage at the world and all who walk upon it that's right and in the late um and in the later later um, sorry that's right and later in this episode we'll be talking to poet and as of last year novelist about his satirical and in some circles controversial debut novel dead souls and what do you want to say his name and his name is sam rivier yeah so you just you said we'll be talking to poet and novelist i feel like you have to name yes that's that's an error in the script Yeah. So attentive listeners might recall us briefly discussing Sam's novel on our Christmas review episode. It's been described as both a delightfully unhinged metaphysical mystery disguised as a picaresque romp and an evisceration of the small world of English poetry. And it is both those things, but also 
Um, it's a satire on the world of contemporary publishing, academia, capitalism more generally, and on what the novel sees as contemporary culture's misguided emphasis on and fetishising of originality. That was a good bit of script. Yeah. 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 Well, I think it was read very well. <laughs> it so, was. Yeah. Somebody said to me the other day that they, um, their partner had said that you had a very nice voice. Aww. But then they stressed that they didn't say anything about my voice. <laughs> so that's fine. <laughs> okay. um, so yeah, Dead Souls, it's a novel which has been met by some extremely positive reviews and also some slightly confused ones, a distinction which I think speaks to both the novel's conviction and the varying intelligence of its reviewers. Ooh, well, what are the reviews... The, quite the read for you there. One of the reviews me? really annoyed me because it was like, this, mm. is, this is quite an interesting premise, but it's completely unreadable, mm. as if... As if Sam hadn't realised that, you know, as if it wasn't yeah, a stylistic choice. Those, yeah, as if you, know. you just forgot paragraphs. Or yeah, so yeah. That, that, that one, that one review mm. got on my nerves on behalf of Sam. He's fine with it, I'm sure. He's pretty cool. Yeah. But uh, one thing that everyone has noticed in all of these reviews, they all tend to agree uh, on the fact that Sam is fuelled by rage. Indeed, as Toby Lip put it in The Guardian, this is a brilliant and brilliantly entertaining novel. The writing is merciless, the rage is genuine. Um, we will come to explore just how rageful Sam mm. really is in the interview, but satire has long had an association with rage, has it not? <laughs> I think it has, Jeff. I'm saying has it not because I've been watching lots of Bridgerton and the, the kind of the one concession that they make to how people spoke in the olden days is to just say, is it not, after everything they say. <laughs> Is it Bridgerton's season two has yeah. gone down a treat, has it not? It has indeed, yeah. yes. Yeah. The ton is alight with discussions of Bridgerton season two, is it not? It sounds like it is indeed. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Zzz, that's, why... that's an in-joke for Bridgerton fans. Is that because the periodical that Lady Whistledown creates has got a bee on the top of it? No. No. But there's a bee on the hashtag, why is that? I should really watch this well, show. Well, yeah, you should watch it. Okay. Um, there's a different reason in season okay. two. Well, actually, it's not a secret. It's because um, Anthony's father, the first Lord Bridgerton, was he died tragically after being stung by a bee. Right. Um, and so Anthony decides that like he, he must never fall in love because everything you love gets destroyed or more specifically stung by bees. <laughs> um, and then he... Uh, so that's why he's so troubled and so unable to to feel any feelings and then the woman that he's sort of falling in love with gets stung by a bee and it drives him absolutely out of his mind and right. he starts like um touching a, a breast as a result of the bee sting all right and um yeah i i won't i won't spoil the rest of it but Did yeah she get stung are, in the breasts it's sort of in that general area okay. yeah in the book um anthony is like slightly a more rakish character and when kate gets stung by a bee <laughs> he says he has to suck the venom out so he starts like suckling at the bee sting which is definitely on her breast and um and that's what happens but not not it doesn't go quite that far in the show wow that's interesting, is it not? It is. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I should rather think. No, I do <laughs> really a challenge, Lady Bridgerton. So yeah, satire and rage. Yeah. Is, uh... I'm satirising Bridgerton. That's what's that's happening good. there. Yeah. It's fine. It's good when we go off script. Isn't it is it? good. When we, I mean, yeah. there is a thing. There's is a, it there's not? A, it is. There's an article in the Private Eye about Bridgerton that was oh, yeah. just pointed out all the way the ways in which loads of brands had like coordinated their marketing to align with the release of the new Bridgerton series, right. but they'd really 
assumed it was going to be another bonkathon. Right. But apparently they've gone for like the slow simmering. It takes romance. a bit longer for them to get to uh, it. There's been yeah. an interesting mismatch between some of the mammoth so images. brands? What, like oh, it was everything. Beasting cream. Yeah, it was like makeup, uh, oh, right, lingerie, okay. underwear, mm-hmm. uh, holidays. It was like literally everyone. There was one that it was something there's, I cut that, don't quote me on this, listeners, but it was like Virgin Media or something had been like, you know, don't forget to check your broadband because Bridgerton's coming out this week. Right. Like, it was every, like everyone was doing it. Everyone was getting in on that Bridgerton bandwagon and mm. uh, it's a bit sordid, really. I, I would never get on that bandwagon just for the sake of it yeah I don't think you're invited on that bandwagon to be fair well apparently not no but yeah so um, yeah. rage rage <laughs> satire and rage rage and satire have a long history together mm. I would suggest it goes back at least as far as Juvenal one of the first Roman satirists I'm sure you would um, we've talked about him normally before normally do yeah his, uh, his first satire which is which has the title why write satire mm. and his answer is because I can't help it it was yeah sort of position I don't know whether he literally was experiencing rage but he positions himself as being overcome by anger and animosity at the world (laughs) and not bees because it wasn't the 18th century it was the older olden days they still had bees but they didn't stink you in the tits in Roman times (laughs) I'm sure they did yeah perhaps perhaps so and um, yeah and where else have we come up with it we've encountered this idea on the podcast before Joe. what that satire has a long association with rage Mm, or Um, an association with rage well, just generally, like mm. well, <laughs> uh, when we've talked about, have I got news for you and things like that? Yeah, um, and those kind of the general trope of the the angry uh, monologue mm. has come up lots of times when we've talked about things, hasn't it? Yeah, I don't know if we've ever spoken. Who do you think we've ever spoken to that is full of rage? <sighs> I would feel like DM reporter mm. is close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was. He talked about it as like he was having to dial it back because he was spending entire days furious, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. Andrew Doyle was kind of vexed. I think I'd say exasperated. Exasperated, yeah. He's quite yeah. calm, actually. Yeah. Um, Most, yeah. Maybe, so do you think, maybe we just pick the ones who aren't full of rage or the rageful ones don't want to talk to us. Well, we never or asked... Maybe, it's not quite true that all satirists are full of rage. I, don't I think know. there's something about the poet. Like, Jonathan Pye positions himself as being, like, the character yeah. is rageful. But he's performing him. rage, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, Dieter Del I'm Kirk. I'm sure it's genuine too. Yeah, yeah. Dieter Del Kirk, who wrote the book Satire, Comedy, and Mental Health, not at all an angry man, really. No, no. Um, but he talks in his book about the, the pressure valve argument, you know, mm. satire, that, that's one of the functions of satire. People say, satire ever changed anything? The answer is possibly not structurally but it's relieved a lot of people when they're really angry yeah <laughs> like it's a way of calming down by venting spleen um so yeah yeah um but before we get any further into all of that and we'll come back to the question of rage i rather think that you wanted to talk about the will smith thing we were parodying at the top of the episode did you not i did did you know that hannah Gregg, who's the historical advisor on mm. Bridgeton? Followed this podcast the other day. Really? Yesterday, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So she'll she'll appreciate this content, um, this British inflected content. Yeah, should we? Mm. So what was that all about? Why did you slap me and such? Um, well, because that's what. Well, it's not what happened with Will Smith and Chris Rock, is it? Uh, it's because of the thing that happened at the Oscars, wasn't it? Where mm. Chris Rock made a joke about Jada Pinkett Smith's um, hair or loss of hair, um, and compared her to the actress. 
Demi Moore mm-hmm. and the role of G.I. Jane mm-hmm. and um, Will Smith got up on stage and slapped him and then there's all sorts of discussion about whether that was staged, if it was staged, why, if it wasn't staged, who was more at fault out of Smith or Rock. Mm-hmm. Smith and Rock talk about slapping. That would be a good, <laughs> that would be. good podcast, would it not? Mm-hmm. Um uh, what? Yeah, um, the question about black women and black women's appearance being the butt of jokes mm-hmm. um, and the various ways in which people accounted for the extent to which they did or did not think it was offensive or think the slap was justified. Mm. Um, and that's what happened, was it mm, not? It was indeed. There was quite a lot to get into because there's mm. the question of is it was it offensive as a joke? Yep. Uh, is it punching up? Is it punching down? Uh, all that kind of debate but then there's also the introduction of like when and how should physical violence be used mm. in response to a joke um, obviously I would say never but there were people saying he's defending that his wife and wasn't yeah saying never became in itself a controversial yeah. thing to have didn't it yeah. but yeah there were questions about defending his wife but then mm. whether the whole notion of like men hitting other men to defend their wives is not perhaps something we might have moved past mm-hmm. or that isn't in it, in and of itself particularly admirable mm-hmm. um, yeah. uh, and then on the backdrop of all of those debates taking place in the media about and, and in social media about what was right and what was wrong and what should happen next and, and everything was a lot of memes I mean uh, what's something that impressed me have you ever seen the meme of it's a panel from like a 1960s or 70s Batman comic and Batman is slapping Robin yeah and people like change the caption don't they there was what someone very quickly like before we woke up here in the UK had redrawn it with Will Smith slapping Chris Rock and and there's all sorts of variations of that someone graffitied it on a wall do you say that somewhere where and it was Will Smith slapping Chris Rock and it was like well it's that classic meme formulation where it's like Chris Rock is uh, your social media persona and Will Smith is real life like slapping right. in the face and so that kind of yeah where you add the captions to it so that, that happened very quickly mm. um, yeah Andrew Bricker who we spoke to a couple of episodes mm. ago was visiting York for reasons we might get into later and he did a session with some of our students and mm-hmm. it was the day after this had happened right um, and he showed the showed a meme of it and he was talking about and I never I haven't heard anyone talk about satire in this way but he was talking about satire being a recommending an intervention and adjustment to a corrigible fault which is right. like cor- correctable something correctable fault, yeah, yeah. It, it, and he actually said like if I said Adam is sat there in an aggressively floral shirt which is kitchen awful mm-hmm. and I mocked him for that were you? I was wearing a paisley shirt right. which I would say is like the tasteful end of the floral shirt mm. spectrum but yeah so he was like if I said that to Adam and we made fun of him he would go away and come back in a different shirt perhaps and then would the satire you? would work and I wouldn't really I mean it depends how good his satire was and how self-conscious he made me yeah. feel so he's like that would be legitimate satire whereas if he made fun of an incorrigible fault and the example he gave is like Adam's really ugly. Right. There's not much I can easily do about that without going down the mm. cosmetic surgery route. So that's like less legitimate satire. And he that's said, "That's like a great session for you there." Oh yeah, it was good for my self-esteem. <laughs> list Adam Smith's <laughs> corrigible and incorrigible faults. <laughs> but he, uh, but he got the point he was making is Chris Rock making a joke about Jada Pinkett Smith's alopecia 
is targeting an incorrigible trait because she can't grow her hair back. that was a whole other layer to it, though, mm. wasn't it? Because there was the question of did he know mm. that she had alopecia? And obviously alopecia would be like a really difficult and unpleasant thing to go through. But did yeah. Or did he just think that she shaved all her hair off? Yeah. Because I think most people agreed they weren't necessarily aware mm. of the underlying reason before it. Mm. So that so that's why or that's a way to account for or describe in more intelligent ways the the aspect of all this discussion that was like did he know it was alopecia or did he not mm. and then to a lesser extent um, or to a related extent did is alopecia a disability or is it not because then that all comes under the the question of corrigible and incor- mm. if he just thought she'd shaved her head off yeah <laughs> if, he, if he just thought she'd shaved her hair off if she'd shaved her head off I think that would be really bang out of order to to criticise yeah. him for that yeah um, so he, that's what yeah. he says he said you've made fun of an incorrigible trait you get mm. a slap but that's the whole then, thing is that he if you wanted to defend him you'd say well he thought it was yeah and also he didn't want her to correct it necessarily did it because I mean his argument was like I'm saying a nice thing I'm saying yeah. you look like Demi Moore who is yeah. generally acknowledged to be a wildly attractive got woman, to, um, you know. yeah I mean uh, that, uh, so yeah and then Andrew made some more fun of my shirt but uh, as it happened I had to leave to go and do a lecture uh, in mm. another room y- y- yeah so the, right you were actually going to change your shirt well the, the third it, yeah. or fourth time he said, made a joke about my shirt I stood up and I said take, take my shirt out of your goddamn mouth <laughs> and stormed out right um, well, in a, in a jokey way. What I didn't realise mm. when I did that joke walkout is that that was the last time I was going to see Andrew before he went back again. Oh, so right. uh, okay. that's how we parted ways. Yeah. But uh, I think he I think he appreciated it. I didn't slap him, no. Good. So, uh, but I mean, do you think there's a time and a... Do you think, like, what should be the uh, the rule for when you can go on stage and slap a comic? Don't. <laughs> I mean, what I, kind I... of joke would inspire you to climb on the stage and hit someone? Oh, wow. Um, I mean, it's... It's so difficult to imagine being able to climb on the stage and feeling confident that you would be able to slap someone and that you wouldn't end up looking like a, a fool for doing mm. it or that you you know you'd be able to like hit them where it hurts or whatever. Mm. But I can think of like insults that would drive me to violent fury or mm. that would make me want to perhaps want to hit someone. Mm. And it would be if it was something that was knowingly and cruelly targeting me or a member of my family so which i guess is exactly how will smith felt but yeah what about so, you i don't think i don't think i would ever go on a stage and hit someone for doing a joke uh, mm. even even at my expense especially i mean i just would not do that but, but also i'm not will smith i'm not in will smith's position yeah what i am thinking about doing is if ever i get any awards for anything mm. uh as a ma- as a matter of general practice i'll just slap whoever gives it to me right okay <laughs> do you think you will get any awards for anything no no. But um, no, so I think if you and I were filled with rage, it would manifest itself in a satirical way. Yeah, I feel like I've been filled with rage so many times and never got on any stages and hit anyone. Mm. That probably if I was going to do that, I would have done it by now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the amount of people that would have been slapped by me were I given to slapping. Yeah. Anyway, do the segue. Uh, yeah, so, but somebody I thought might have slapped you uh, if he wasn't behind a screen and you also, um, but quite deservedly, was um, comic Alistair Beckett King after uh, what you called him. Ah, yes. So this was Joe and I interviewed Alistair Beckett King, who's a comedian and an amazing uh, 
animator really isn't he like he's mm. really involved he did so he was a student at york st john and he did a, a program that was all about film and tv development and techniques and stuff and he's gone on to become a comedian he's been on what the week he does these viral videos uh often involving extremely good animation that are usually about 30 seconds long and we were asked to interview him for ysj alumni yeah um to the university where we work to interview him and uh, and yes, when I was doing his intro, I tripped over some words and well, that's it was an acronym, wasn't it? But it yeah, was, yeah. Let's, let's listen let's to listen. the clip. Yeah. Known as the interdimensional ABK, Alistair is renowned for his unique combination of surreal idiosyncratic humour, his fine eye for observational comedy, and his extraordinary VX abilities. And as that list suggests, Alistair is a fantastic comedian and also a talented filmmaker and animator. He's been awarded the Leicester Mercury Comic Comedian of the Year in 2017 and the Nazis, the new, sorry, the Nazis, the new Act of the Year 2014. Just to be clear, that's N-E-T-Y-S. After all of that, it is at last our very great pleasure to hand over to the man himself, Alistair Beckett King. Hello, thank you. It's me, Alistair. Very popular with the the Nazis, apparently. (laughs) Not an intro I was expecting. Hello there. Um, Hello. We're not sure. We're not sure whether to start with an apology for implying you were a Nazi or for implying that you were mild. Um, so we're sorry for being mildly inappropriate. There. If you're going to be a Nazi, at least be a mild Nazi. That's yeah, what I exactly. Say. It's, yeah. it's the extremists who ruin it for for everyone just on the Nazi front. He took it well. He did um, suspiciously well. Um, only joking. Yeah, no, it was a it was a good chat, wasn't it? It was, and listeners can watch the whole thing on the old YouTube if they search for alumni journeys, creative careers, and community, which I heartily encourage all of our listeners to do because I really thought that video was going to go viral, but at present it has seventy views. Well, that is uh, about as popular as an article in the conversation about how Bridgerton links to some really niche research about 18th century periodicals, isn't it? Take my goddamn research out of your... Yeah, I just want to point out, because I feel like sometimes I get the sort of saltier lines on this, that <laughs> that, that dig at Adam's um, article in the conversation was scripted by him, so he put those words in my mouth, mm-hmm. and I wasn't going to be rude about the article. How is that doing? Have you got any more reads yet? Uh, yeah, it's, it's yeah. in the thousands now. Yeah, well, the that's low, the still low so, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, I mean, so, it's not, yeah, it's not as successful it. as one about trigger warnings and the Brontes. I'm, I might write an article about Bridgerton in the conversation, but yeah. it'll just be like, uh, Bridgerton, there's got a bee in it, has it not? I rather think. And that'll um, get loads to read. I mean, just in all seriousness, I couldn't mm. have done that if it hadn't been for you because I have not seen Bridgerton and I needed to ask you about it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, thank you for making that happen. Um, <laughs> yeah, so... Um, yeah, uh, anyway, go watch that thing about Alistair Beckett King on YouTube and also read the article in the conversation. Read It, it is a good article about um, Bridgerton and pseudonyms in the 18th century. Yeah, and something which stayed with me after we spoke to Alistair Beckett King is that obviously we did make the conversation about satire. It happened quite organically, and he mm. said he doesn't, he didn't, never heard of the difference between Juvenal and Horatian satire. He didn't know what satire was. He like he didn't think of himself as doing satire, and that's just stayed with me because when I see his clips, they seem like they are satire to me. So mm. I wondered if uh, I could show you a short clip. And ask you if you think it's satire. Yes, you can. Okay. Shall we, um, shall we do that? Yeah, let's do that. Well, Professor Meat Dog, being eaten by that ghost certainly taught me about unconventional family structures. Yeah, baby! I guess I learned I have to be myself. 
Preach! And I must never commit space genocide. Ugh! Cartoons were way better than that when I was a kid. Buy me, kids! Buy me! I'm polluting on purpose for no reason. Buy me! Buy me! Buy me! Or the communists win! Yeah, I think it's I think it's that time. Yeah, yeah. I, I, because um, so just in case it helps with the the visuals for anybody who hasn't seen this mm-hmm. and has just heard it on this clip now. So it's like uh, a a loose parody of like a contemporary cartoon where a little kid's walking along with his friend who is what is it like a a, a lamb shank or something yeah yeah and it and learning about social justice and so on um and then he's satirizing boomers and gen x's who think that cartoons were better when they were a child so then it cuts to alistair's face saying that yeah well, it cuts to alistair saying yeah that with his face yeah um and then like a sort of pa- parody of transformers isn't it it's a past- how yeah cartoons have always been about like making you buy the merch yeah um and I think, yeah, yeah and it's, so I think the point is possibly that both of the, that, that the boomer character portrayed by Alistair in the middle might be like, well, these, these cartoons now are too ideological, they're better in my mm. day, but it's just a different ideology, and it was, yeah. and I think the, and then the exaggeration yeah. sort of and it, comes And it exaggerates both kinds of cartoons, yeah. doesn't it? Both the 80s ones. If, it, if the person's remembering 80s cartoons, they're probably... A Gen Xer rather than a boomer, mm, aren't they? Yeah, it's very much a Gen X trait. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. What are they going? I I imagine loads of people have said this already, but what are they going to do? What how? What are they going to name the generation after Gen Z? Gen Alpha. Well, I don't know. Gen. Yeah. I don't know. I don't Omicron. Know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a minor point. Gen Z Delta or something like that. Um, um yeah, but I do I do think that's that time. I think so, it is. I think yeah. if I was going to get technical about it, I'd say I think it's a pastiche of mm. both sets of cartoons, but then the satire is on the the commentary. Yeah, they're, they're the target, aren't yeah. they? And then there's fun to be had by pastiching the two different kinds of cartoon, but the the target is and the point that's being made is like in your nostalgia you're failing to recognise everything that was wrong yeah. about your beloved children's TV from when you were a child in the 80s because yeah. you were a Gen Xer yeah yeah yeah. so yeah we so we interviewed him and it was productive we actually interviewed yeah. lots of people in March didn't we we interviewed yeah. Andrew Bricker we interviewed Lee Stein both in front of a live audience at the York Literature Festival yeah and I also interviewed Michael Stewart the week before for you the did. York Literature Festival yeah, about the Brontes of... Walking the Invisible. So, Andrew yeah. Bricker, Lee Stein, you interviewed Michael Stewart, author of Walking the Invisible. That's right. Obviously, we spoke to Sam Riviera. We were just doing like, full, we went full Graham Norton for a month, didn't we? Basically, yeah. just interviewing yeah. loads of people. It's been a busy time. Um, and so, the York Literature Festival events, it was a live event with Andrew Bricker, who came all the way over from the University of Ghent, and then mm. it was talking to Lee Stein over Zoom in front of a full, st- I don't want to say studio audience, but it was like lecture <laughs> theatre audience. Yeah. Um, and the whole day was called Satire Days at York St. John University. And the second event with Lee, where she was talking about what to miss when... Uh, sorry, is that what yeah, called? Yeah, what to yeah. miss when and self-care was called Contagious Laughter, Satire yeah. and the Pandemic. And something that someone pointed out to me was that calling that one of those events Contagious Laughter was actually tempting fate, especially since COVID infections were peaking that weekend. Uh, not that we could have known that back in September when we had to pitch the titles, but it, it, we were pushing yeah. it hubristically, weren't we? Yeah, we tempted fate, and um, fate took the bait, didn't it? Because it, did. uh, it gave you COVID it did. almost immediately afterwards. So yeah. yeah, 
Um, COVID is real. COVID yeah. is still with us. I, and, I know uh, it's real. No, yeah. I'm just saying because there's a, there's a test there. Put me in a room with loads of people, and I got COVID. So for the yeah. first time in but the whole pandemic. No, you didn't. That, now that really is tempting fate, isn't it? It is. will be broadcast, and I'll have COVID. Yeah. Well, especially now that we've just recorded this in the booth three days well, later. Yeah, you're better now, <laughs> I am better, you? I am better, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, I think it does seem a shame that I contracted the COVID virus after our book came out, which is called Contagious Laughter, talking about mm. satire uh, in the age of COVID-19, because that book is all about documenting landmarks in the pandemic by reflecting on like what was happening on the podcast at each crucial moment. So currently, the book that's just been released ends with me having to self-isolate in November 2020. But I think maybe a more satisfying narrative arc would be if it ended with this episode where we talk about me actually getting COVID. Yeah, well, we'll do a second edition with the transcript of this episode in it. Um, but if we do, then this bit's going to be really weird to read. Yeah, I mean, how come I got pinged and had to self-isolate, but you never did? That's actually happened to me twice. Yeah. And then I went and got COVID um, at the time of recording and you still you, haven't. You got pinged? I got pinged. You got the test that was wrong I went to a test yeah listen to this you got the this. test that was right and the virus that was wrong so yeah. that's three big COVID things that have happened to you isn't it yeah so I got pinged yeah. and then I went to one of these test centre sites where you do like someone does the lateral flow mm. test for you and I got a message saying it was positive and I had to go for a PCR and self-isolate into my birthday and then the yeah. message and then got a message saying it had been an accident and yeah. I was negative all along and then I got real COVID and in all that time you've not had any no COVID scares or COVID actuals no no, it's weird, isn't it? I, I, we could say that I've been fortunate. Mm. We could say um, I don't really do that many tests. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we could say that, um, you know, it's the luck of the draw. We could say that you're just an intrinsically worse person. Like mm. maybe you're not wearing enough masks or... Well, you've said here to say sanitise your hands, but as we all know, that's pretty much nothing in the that's battle against um, COVID, isn't it? Yeah, but... Uh, it's it's gone airborne now because there was not not enough room left on all the all the um, surfaces for COVID. Now it's so bad it's in, it had to go. Now you said air. that we're going to get the little um, label on us that says check out well, real information look, about COVID. Well, we? well, why? Which bit? Which bit? Well, just by saying the word COVID lots of times, okay. we trigger getting that label. But, yeah. Uh, um, but I, I I also think another answer might be that maybe I I like I went to London at the beginning of March 2020, and when I came back, I was quite unwell for about three days maybe that. that was a sort of minor mm. COVID. i don't think it was but i don't know I, Do you I, all i can think is you deserve it yeah oh. we are of course slightly burying the lead here though which is that as i just alluded to our book contagious laughter talking about satire in the age of covid19 has now been printed it and has. delivered it has yeah um it will be available to buy directly from green teeth press very soon but in the meantime we have a limited number of copies to give away to loyal listeners for naught pounds 50 pence for free naught pounds 50 pence is a big bag of pasta isn't it um we will be giving them away for naught pounds naught pence which is another way of saying free. Goodness me, yeah. going away for free. Yeah, so all you have to do is go to our Twitter, click on the link in the pinned tweet, which takes you to a short survey about how the podcast may have had an impact on you, and we'll send a signed copy of the book to the first 20 people who do that. What generosity. Yeah, and shall we, we, we could read their names out, couldn't we, like if we had a Patreon? We could do, we could do that, if yeah. If you want your name reading out. Yeah, podcast. let's do yeah. that. Yeah, okay. so so we'll, if you but do that... Yeah, just specify if you want your name read out or if you would rather that nobody knows. Yeah, I'll add that, I'll add that to the form. <laughs> yeah. um, so if you do do that, but you're not in the first 20, so you don't get a free copy sent to you, we'll do something else and send that to you instead. What, what on earth would that be? 
a little episode of a special episode of the podcast okay. just for them like a patreon right. episode or a, 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 an e-copy of it like, well, mm, there'll be something yeah. there'll be some kind yeah. of thing but obviously what you should try to do is be in the first 20 so you might even want to pause the podcast and do that right now we'll wait so go 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 and get your hands on a free copy of contagious laughter the first edition yeah speaking of books then shall we finally talk about dead souls satire and rage let's Right, okay, so before we play the interview, to get us in the mood and back on topic, I'd just like to do a quick game, which is a response to something that you did with me two episodes ago. What was that? When you made me describe a very complicated quote in layman terms, and then berated me for not doing a very good job whilst I was doing it. Yes. So now I'd like you to do the same thing with this quote. Okay. Okay, it's on the screen now. Right, shall I read it out loud and then... Read it out loud and then translate it, yeah. Defenders and or apologists have insisted that satire be distinguished from some of its less sociable and more unruly relatives, like invective, by the presence of a controlling intelligence that denatures and refines the production of satire. In his essay on satire as behaviour, Alvin Kernan suggests that satire is distinguished by the presence of the irrational emotion... Emotional? Or should it be a rational emotion? It's emotion, I think. Of hostility, normally repressed with a simultaneous brilliant play of rationality. However, it might be just as it might just as easily be argued that if all art is the production of sublimation and masking of primal emotion, then satire is the work that exposes and thereby sublimates art. Satire creates masks which are designed to be transparent. Okay, so what does that mean? Go. Okay, um, so lots of people have tried to say that the way we that that we have to think about satire differently from when we think about just like ranting, um, and the difference is that there is something in charge, something thoughtful that polishes satire in the making of it, and that's why it's different from just shouting. Alvin Kernan, I'm not going to try and translate that, that's the yeah, dude's that's name, name. Um, he's written an essay on, on satire as a behaviour, again I think that's fair to say that mm-hmm. that's just um, reading at this point well, no, it's not um, he says that the difference is that um, with satire you have some inexplicable anger which you normally um, keep down Mm-hmm. Instead of repressed, right, yeah, um, and <laughs> the, so you have that anger there, but you're kind of also doing a brilliant play of rationality. Um, the, 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 there's something kind of controlled there as well uh, with with that irrational emotion. But never mind Alvin Kernan saying that. We could just as as simply suggest that. Um, Seeing as art generally is a way that you channel um, your feelings and through art we kind of express them and get rid of them and channel them into somewhere else, then satire does that to art. I don't think that makes sense. Hmm. Satire is the work that exposes and thereby sublimates art. So satire shows art to be false and in doing so it sublimates it satire creates masks which are designed to be transparent i just think that's words for the sake of it to be honest <laughs> that i mean well no i mean i suppose it is not is it that you you're never supposed to be taken in you're supposed to see it's a mask but know it's a mask when you see like a satirical persona mm. so so you might see the thing that looks like invective um but that it's 
guided by the controlling intelligence but you know that it's a satirical persona rather than that it's just somebody shouting brilliant but I mean saying that in relatively plain language Mm. it made it about eight times as long as Brian A. Connery (laughs) and Kirk Coombe yeah um but it is quite an entertaining parlour game, is it not? Mm, it is, yeah. is it not? In the pool! <laughs> yes. Yeah. I liked when uh, one of the moments where you as decoded you kind of just went a little bit more regional. So you, you're like... Oh, so try to talk normal. <laughs> you're like, you're invective. Is that, <laughs> what is invective? So you got your invective out, and then you, you've, got, you've got your controlling intelligence. No, that you was... see them off there at the same time. That was very in, in, very impressive. I was going to try and uh, heckle you, but I was just I couldn't because you're doing too good a job. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> it's like cool. you, I'm glad you explained that to me as well because I've been wondering what it meant for ages. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that was a little insight into what it's like being in one of my seminars where I try and sort of explain something, but it takes eight times as long as it would have to just leave people to it. And I keep repeating myself and going off at tangents, yeah. and nobody's really any the wiser at the end of it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, good. Well, that was that was a fun challenge. Do you want to read a little bit out of Sam's book before yes. we go on? Yes, so before yeah. we get into, into Undead Souls, I thought it mm. might be useful to read a little bit so that people know what it's like, because it's quite unusual in some ways. Um, so at this point, the narrator is talking about how he's not very keen on going to poetry readings, mm. and then he says that... Um, well, this is not the bit I'm going to read, but he says, It seems to me that every poet who appears on stage at the apex of the diagram was is reduced instantaneously to a single attribute. This poet funny, for example. This poet deadly serious. This one has had. This one has been a manual labourer. This one has been a feigned lecturer. This one wrote about their religious beliefs. This one about their nihilism. This one their checkered sexual history. This one their marriage. This one their children. This one their parents. This one their background of economic de- deprivation. This one their background of emotional deprivation. <clears throat> and this it goes isn't on. The bit you're going to read. No, no, I'm just saying. So I just need to explain. So he goes on for a long time right. saying that, and the point is like poets. Ha- are assigned one characteristic mm. and then that's everything you need to know about them it's not their poems it's not their work it's just their, their ability to perform this characteristic and then he, he talks about meeting poets before at the recital but before they go on stage and this is the bit i was going to read he says um it seemed to me that the, that the poets themselves were well aware of their dependency on this one trait uh, they were aware of their reliance on the single trait they were reduced to they knew what it was and they played upon it uh, consciously in conversation they even knowingly referenced it i thought but somehow this knowingness evaporated when they took to the stage once there under the hot lights they inhabited the role that they'd expressed skeptical awareness of moments before but with no embarrassment or discomfort whatsoever which then i wondered was the truer presentation then he goes on to dwell on this like is it the person before they go on the stage who's aware of the role the single trait that they perform or is it the single trait they perform like which is real um, he said did one of these roles underpin the other i wondered was there a hierarchy because if the sincerity of a poet as they recited a poem represented their true feelings then the modesty and knowingness they displayed before and after the recital was simply a performance it was the real performance, a mask that, despite its more natural and convincing appearance, disguised the immoderately high value the poet placed on their own words. But if their modesty and knowingness were the genuine expressions, I thought, then that made their poetry nothing more than a fully contrived project of mass manipulation, behind which there was no feeling, just the cold-minded deployment of the attribute that a given poet had been allotted with seconds after opening their mouths, and that experience had taught them, and that experience had taught them to ruthlessly exploit. Wow. Do you want to say a bit 
bit about that. So I think if it is satirical, which is something we talked to Sam about, mm. I, the, the satire is the, the the sharp end of the satire is is the conceit that mm. we're invited to buy into when you when you watch a poet do a reading. And I mean, the stuff about some listeners might be thinking it's strange that this that this narrator assumes that the poem would be a true heartfelt uh, mm. expression of feeling, like. Of course it isn't. Of course they're performing something. It's a performance. Yeah. But I mean, the the assumption that it might have something to do with a genuine feeling I think goes back to the roots of uh, romanticism and what poetry mm. is, isn't it? A poetry is a feeling recollected in solitude or the overflow of feeling recollected. Yeah. So yeah, so it just it comes back to that question. I th- I like that extract. It's, it's getting at the question of like, is poet is are these poems actually sincerely doing anything? Is or is there a cynical aspect to it? Yeah. Is it art or is it cynicism? Or of course it can be both. Um, and I think it's it's digging into that. But I think with quite a good bit of precision. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's what the book is like, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, I mean that that amount of ado was really helpful. But I think without further ado, it's time, listeners, to listen to our conversation with Sam. Sam is the author of three poetry books: Eighty-One Austerities, Twenty Twelve, Kim Kardashian's Marriage, Twenty Fifteen, and After Fame, Twenty Twenty. All published by Faber and Faber, as well as numerous limited edition titles. As you'll no doubt have gathered, Dead Souls came out at the end of last year. Sam has won at least nine awards for his poetry and fiction. He completed a PhD at the University of East Anglia in 2012. And he's now an assistant professor at Durham University and runs a micro-publisher in Edinburgh called Ifalief Falls Press. Cool. Let's listen to that. Okay, welcome, Sam. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. We're looking forward to it. So we've got quite a few questions that we're, we're interested in talking about but we thought we'd start with something simple and ask you how you would pitch dead souls to the uninitiated i suppose the shortest summary is it's a novel about poets and plagiarism and love and technology and i guess the a sort of basic outline is uh there's a the sort of not that there's a narrator who meets the sort of main character who's a, a poet who has been publicly disgraced for plagiarising. The, po- the the narrator himself is a sort of editor of a magazine and we hear a bit about his activities. Then he meets this poet and then he hears the majority of the book is the poet's tale about how he became a plagiarist and how he was caught and how it happened then ag- again for a second time. <laughs> so, um, yeah, um, and it's set in a slightly unreal version of London. So it's recognisably London, but there's there's a slightly futuristic element to it, or slightly parallel universe element to it, I suppose. You said that's a simple task. I, mean, I taught this on the MA and the week before when I was trying to pitch it to the students, so I found it quite hard to... Yes. <laughs> In our Christmas episode, we highlighted this as one of our one of our recommendations that listeners might want to, to, to buy. So we've talked about it briefly on the podcast before as a work of satire, but we were wondering to what extent did you think of it as a satire when you were writing it? Mm. I think that the kind of the idea there there is certainly a satirical dimension to it. Like part of the motive for writing it was kind of presenting this comically exaggerated version of um, the poetry scene, some of which... I don't think when writing I would have a very like clear idea of genre because I wouldn't want to inhibit myself in that way to start feeling like oh I can't if I'm doing that how what is that satirical of mm-hmm. 
So I would say there are strands of satire in the novel. There, there's certainly the attention on poetry readings, for example, or or the sort of publicity machine around poetry is ridiculed. But then I would also say there are other elements of the novel which to me aren't aren't really satirical so much as just comedic and and even perhaps not comedic. <laughs> But uh, trying to get at something in, in yeah, I think I, I guess maybe I'm I'm not clear myself on like when exaggeration or sort of a fabulistic imagining of something sort of um, tips into or pivots into satire. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I feel like satire maybe demands a sort of clarity of purpose, which I probably I felt more like I was trying to let the novel breathe and sort of be the creature it wanted to be, rather than determine trying to determine it too much because just for me in writing that's that's the best way to approach it does that make sense i don't think yeah. it's completely legible as satire perhaps so it's not it's not a satire with a singular focus than a, a target that you're going after but it does exactly a, a kind of satirical mood and feel about it absolutely that seems right it's interesting obviously i'm not a, we're not general readers in that we talk about what satire is on a monthly basis um mm. but so the definition that we tend to use is for it to be satire, it has to map onto a historical particular, so something in the real world. Mm-hmm. They use exaggeration to draw attention to the ridicule or folly involved in that. Uh, but also it has to have a specificity. of It has to be a, a target. There has to be a specific target. Mm-hmm. And I found, I was reading it with, with that in mind, for the, first couple, for the first portion of the book, I felt like it was absolutely that. It's a satire on the contemporary poetry scene and publishing, how all of those things work. But then as the book goes on, there are these layers to it, aren't there? These ever, like these circles as you go backwards and forwards. And then by the end, I was like, well, I feel like the target is something much more embedded in general than just what's happening in mm. publishing. It feels like it's, yeah, and we can get into that, but it felt like it was something's gone. Yeah, wrong. no, I th- that's that's a very generous reading. Yeah, I thank you. Um, I think it, it does... Uh, it sort of gets led by its own logic, I suppose. Like I, I definitely, I knew there was certain things I wanted to make fun of or just present in like an outlandish way um, that to me was amusing and had like, I think I thought of it of a bit like a sort of one of those, like a filter on your phone where something drops down over reality. You mm. can still see the contours of reality there, but it's it's been, you know, augmented or or, or coloured or enhanced somehow so that you're so part of it is perhaps part of the the pleasure in that or when I'm reading anyway books that I like is like recognizing the contours of reality there mm. um, but also just enjoying the sort of um, like something a bit more spectacular just about the the, the colour of the world or the detail. So yeah, I think I think maybe it it started off being on sort of quite sure ground as what was being mocked and but I suppose I always wanted the the narrator to to be not on solid ground, so that while he might initially he, he's quite ruthless about the literary world, but then the more we find out about, we don't find out much about him. But the more that we he reveals to us, the more he seems to be not um, excluded from that. <laughs> So I feel like, I mean, Marshall's really good on this, I suppose, that like he's like, I, I wrote a book of translation of loose translations of Marshall. Um, but yeah, I feel like the, the, the satirical impulse always circles back to sort of eat away at the ground he's on as well. Mm-hmm. That like he doesn't escape from it either. So I suppose that then you start to you start to be in a situation where you're sort of um 
you're undermining the the premise of the activity that you're doing so it can't help but start to like infect everything and then it gets hopefully i suppose it gets closer to diagnosing some kind of condition in a in a sort of critical way but that's in the that's an in interpretation i suppose it's not really spelled out i mean at first i thought the exaggeration would be what's happened in the publishing industry in this world which is i mean i don't i don't think it's too big a spoiler because it's quite near the start of the book isn't it but it's basically the publishing industry has introduced this new plagiarism software called quack yeah and that's changed changed all the dynamics so that's it that's the sort of speculative fiction sci-fi sure, yeah. exaggeration but then apart from that the rest of the book is horribly recognizable i mean mm-hmm. there's comedic in there but their conversations are their situations i've been in Right, so yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, me too, yeah. obviously. <laughs> <laughs> on that on that note, we've got this little quotation from a Guardian review of Dead Souls. There's, there's quite a lot of phrasing in here to unpack and we might come back to it later. But so the book's described as an evisceration of the small world of English poetry, which combines meticulous analysis with despairing intimacy and also describes the book as a work of comic rage. And so I definitely want to come back to the idea of rage. We did want to ask, whether you consider this book to be an evisceration of the small world of English poetry and if you could tell us a bit more about that it's affectionate but yeah I mean I think it's it's also I mean yeah a lot of it is is true I mean a a lot of the the sentiment in there is is corresponds pretty directly with my own feeling but again it's enhanced or like played up or or articulated in a particular way I suppose my hope when I was thinking about because I suppose one of the obstacles for the book to publication perhaps was thinking about is this like too niche and situation to really like be of interest to people outside of it but I suppose my hope was that that it corresponds with a lot of small arts or communities of that sort that um there's and particularly in the age we live in where performance of participation is so much a part of or perhaps inextricable from participation that it seemed to be in some ways epitomized in the poetry world that in a way that I thought would resonate with other scenarios that are are different on the surface but essentially following the same the same logic or the same like encountering the same problems and ambiguities I suppose so yeah, I suppose something quite central to it is like the idea of what's what's the difference between sort of performing something and really doing it. And is that any longer a meaningful distinction? Mm-hmm. And I suppose, you know, if you go back over time, there's always been people who've been accused of not being the real, being a fake one, you know, of not being the real thing, of, of performing the role of a writer without really being a writer, right? So, But it seems like that this is a distinction that might not really matter anymore. <laughs> So it's to do with like trying to like sort of unpick that. So yeah, I mean, part of it is completely genuine, but then I suppose I'm I'm aware that I'm caricaturing the poetry world as well, which is also a world I know and am from really. So it's it's one that I'm uh, affectionate towards and familiar with uh, as yeah. much as anything. Would this does this sound right then that you there is there is a kind of evisceration, but a sort of affectionate, friendly evisceration of the world of poetry because that's the thing that you you 
have observed all the minute detail of, of how these things work yeah. and how performance and participation overlap. But then mm. also poetry is almost a sort of, is representative of a much more general trend whereby mm. things are confused. Yeah, and I feel like poetry itself, because of its particular status, that it's not... A, it, it always intrigued me that it was a place where there aren't really financial rewards for participation in poetry. The, the reward is something else. And when you start to try and like work out what that is, it becomes quite complicated. Like, is it sort of integrity or authenticity or what does success in the poetry world mean? What is the value of that, if you like, if it isn't, if it can't be measured in any normal way? Is it visibility? Is it influence? So, yeah, it seemed to me that poetry is like a, a, an unusual example in a way, but I think one that's become, that has seemed prescient of like situations where, okay, the, the, the remuneration of a situation might, might be quite far down the list of uh, objectives for someone who wants to be an influencer or something. That, that's going to come with the territory, right, if you're successful. So a lot of it is, uh, is there already in poetry, maybe bec weirdly because it has that dimension like omitted from it, like the immediate financial, like unlike the art world, for example. It, in a weird way, it was what, what rules poetry if it isn't that? Like why, is, why are things a certain way? Why are value systems the way they are? If you're taking that ingredient away. So it seemed like a sort of a place where we could, I could play around with that because um, the rules aren't exactly fixed in the same way as they would be in other scenarios i suppose i mean it's almost like it's speaking to something that is usually goes unspoken that you're not allowed to acknowledge but certainly i feel is quite an obvious point which is that, that well there's a suspicion that people don't really read the poetry or <laughs> engage with poetry either and it happens i mean we were just talking about this the other day in the context of teaching when you're teaching close reading it's quite mm. hard to get a student to actually engage with a poem mm. because they'll look at the biography of the author they'll look at the context or they'll <laughs> They'll pick one word and then do quite a detailed investigation into the etymology of that word. But then if they're sat in front of you and say, what do you think the poem means? They struggle. But then if you sit with them and go through it line by line and actually talk about what it means, it's like you've done a magic trick. Um, mm, and, sure. uh, and I think in contemporary poetry as well, you get beautiful volumes, don't you? Like beautifully produced, usually by like small or avant-garde presses that look like objects and then they get instagrammed and then there'll be booktubers talking about them and there'll be a whole like almost cult of personality around the book but then my suspicion is well has anyone actually read it or is anyone going mm, yeah no there's a weird void at the hmm. i mean there are some some exceptions i suppose like there's certainly strands of poetry where the where the meaning is fairly apparent Mm. Um, but is also perhaps because of its sort of overdetermined nature, like mm. almost like one doesn't need to read it because of that. You know, you already know what it means. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, th I agree that I think there's often like a, a sort, yeah, sort of a, something missing at the the heart of this discourse, right? Like the actual discussion of the the material. But I think this this is this is not a new thing. Like there's a there's a really wonderful novella by is he Austrian writer Arthur Schnitzler called Late Fame, which is about a poet who discovered, who in late in his career, he's given up writing poetry for 40 years. He's in his 70s or 60s. And he gets rediscovered in Vienna by a younger generation of poets. And he sort of get he starts to write again. He attends the readings and he gradually works out. I mean, it's a spoiler, but he gradually works out that no one has actually read, read his work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, you know, that he's just for some reason floated into relevance again. It strikes me that almost everything we've just been saying 
about poetry could be said of academic publishing generally. You mm-hmm. know, the thing has to be done, it has to be published, it has to be reviewed, there has to be impact generated or something that retrospectively can look like impact, but that might not really correlate to all that many people having read it. And certainly... Of course. And there's definitely the parallel in terms of like remuneration, isn't there? You don't, you're not going to get any kind of financial recompense really in most situations for academic publishing. Yeah, I think for me, academia is a bit different because the status is measurable. Like you can work at a good uni, you can have tenure or whatever the equivalent for us is you know that that in itself is is already a sort of hunger game scenario where it's pretty ruthless and it's pretty hard to get you know there's an enormous oversaturation of early career academics right so it it feels like it's a bit more obvious to me what the value of those things are in setting and yeah, it's, I mean, academia has also always had a small, small, you know, the, the fact that books are so expensive and it tells us that, that the audience is small. But nonetheless, I would have to say that despite its sort of air of duty, it's, it, it, is a, it is a discourse that seems to sustain itself, right? Like if you have your, you know, if you're into Veronica Forrest Thompson and go to all the Veronica Forrest Thompson conferences, you'll know the other Veronica Forrest Thompson scholars and you will probably read each other's work because it interests you. So I, f- I feel like it's uh, it's more focused and niche, but that's the, the name of the game, if you like. But I suppose perhaps there's an element of like the, the way the university formalizes this, like you're saying, like impact and ref and this kind of stuff, which I feel like is on the same wavelength as this way of thinking, where it's like, really, you just want like the token of something without the actual thing, right? Yeah. To have passed the token over without necessarily no one cares beyond that because that's not the point the point is that you've you've paid attention and you've passed across your token so yeah that's that when I said most of the things we've said apply that I was thinking like well the difference is it is clear why people do academic publishing because it, it's yeah. why you have to do it and what the one is obliged to be yeah yeah whereas if you wonder why someone's at a poetry reading that's a bit more difficult to answer <laughs> yeah <laughs> and we we wanted to talk a bit more about poetry things, well i mean we? yeah. early on in the book one of the bits that felt riskiest to me was the account of what it's like to go to a poetry reading or why the narrator doesn't want to go to a poetry reading and just the suggestion that no that no one's listening to the poems and he's thinking from quite early on about whether listens to the bit with great interest as to where the fire exits are and then from then on the only thing that matters is the identities crafted by the poets you listen to their bios and then struggle with the poems and i mm-hmm. i thought that was remarkably well observed because i've long held the suspicion that it, it's almost impossible to make meaningful sense of a poem that you've not heard before, that you've not encountered before listening to it in that environment anyway and yet mm. everybody is sat there poised on the edge of their seats, offered in their scarves, mm-hmm. wine, acting like something like a real intellectual engagement has happened. And yeah, I thought that was great. But similarly, I have the same suspicion about academic conferences. Like, mm. how many people can follow an ac- a paper, an academic conference, mm. meaningfully? I have a bit on that as well. I think towards yeah. the end. So yeah, that felt risky, and I just wondered. Did you ever think how about how this is going to be received by your peers? Not really, because I think, yeah, OK, there might be things that are close to the bone, but they're close to the bone for me as well. And I suppose there's another dimension to this, which is that poetry readings are sort of convivial occasions. And the, the real reason people go is to talk to people and meet people and have fun. It's it's not really always that much about the, 
the poetry that might be particular people that attract an audience. But yeah, the, the narrator is like, there's a lot of stuff I could say in response to what the narrator says, but like, if obviously he's blind, you know, he's blinded to that stuff. Yeah, no, so I didn't really worry about it. I suppose the, the question is really about who's reading. Like it, it, there are probably things that would offend or upset some people in the poetry community. But then I think for other people, they would be things that everyone is well aware of. And they're not perhaps the things you can say in that situation, but that everyone kind of knows that this is part of it. And yeah, you might go through a season of fatigue with that and then want to go back and do it again because um yeah I'm not as jaded as the narrator is about this but yeah there's there's I mean I I certainly agree that I think uh, if one was to to believe that the reason you're at a poetry reading was to absorb the poetry then it would be confusing for me at least I, the experiences I've had with poetry that have meant anything to me have been when I read it in my room you know it's I'm not someone who particularly responds to performance so that is really the reason I go but um there are people who do and there are people who for whom that's like a really important part of their writing. So yeah, I feel like I, I had to go in, if I was going to go in for that, I had to go in for other elements of the poetry world as well, which I sort of tried to do in other places. But yeah, that's probably, it was an easy one. So It was interesting when that's I taught this on our MA in Contemporary Lit, which has got students from literature and creative writing and publishing on it. Um, mm. They all said that they didn't like that section because they thought yes. it was too cynical. Yes. Like, I think that possibly maybe hit a nerve. <laughs> yeah yeah maybe yeah I suppose that I mean I mean it, there would be no reason in writing something like this if it if there wasn't at least the possibility of of something like that happening right? like it's supposed to be I think I like reading books that do just comfort me to an extent so part of the reason of sort of I seem to like not really be able to approach some approach writing exactly for quite a while unless I'm sort of reflecting back on the conditions of writing. So that's become my sort of um, process or method in a way. So nothing that you've said so far sounds particularly like it comes from a place of rage, but I wanted to um, to go back to that little bit from the, the review where the, the guy says, the writing is merciless, the rage is genuine. Um, mm. And I just wondered what you've got to say about rage, your rage and how rage and comedy might intersect in in this book i mean is there some rage there it's it's fiction so um there's a there's a distinction for me between expressing something in a veiled way or i think there's a there's a thing where you with a with a with a novel or a first person narrator you're setting up something you're setting something in motion and and the the logic the logic of that determines what then happens like so the narrator is able to say certain things because of what he said before everything sort of follows from the sort of channel you open for that voice. So in in certain certain senses, it's true. I mean, there are there are bits where the voice becomes like a rant, and I would say I feel some kinship with the things that the voice is expressing. I I myself probably wouldn't express them in that way, but like I definitely those were what came to mind, if you like. So so yeah, and there's an obvious connection between. I think the the the, the connection between comedy and rage can work like in possibly two different ways like one way is like which is maybe what's happening here is where the more you talk about something or the more you talk the more an emotion manifests and I would say yeah that there is anger in the book but the the anger sort of seems to me to have been manifested out of the voice to an extent like I didn't go into the book angry I mean it's mainly funny to me the book that in itself, like a voice becoming angry can be funny right (laughs) like someone getting worked up 
So I feel there's an element of that. And then there's there's another way, which is like that I suppose comedy is manufactured by rage. I'm thinking of Swift or, you know, the famous thing, which I'm sure you must have talked about on your podcast about the eating children in Ireland, um, where, where it's clearly like an icily executed piece of writing that is powered by an absolutely insatiable rage, you would have to assume, right? Like there is just the 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 extremity of the idea and the sort of um coolness with which it's with which it's done would suggest that there's an absolute intensity of purpose there now i I don't think that's what's going on with me um i don't I feel far too ambivalent for something like that, and it's the stakes are not quite on the same level. But I think there are there are moments in the book where something comes into sight and I felt like I, I had to think quite carefully about how to how to navigate my way through that topic. Parts on gender representation in writing, parts on um, nationalism, which come in near the end, which I felt like I wanted to both ventriloquize like a real emotion to that while also making clear that the voice is also um co-opting those things for its own purposes as well right like so it's a bit of a balancing act of having to give an account of something while at the same time realizing that i'm speaking through a mask so there's certain things that that voice is never going there's a certain way of saying things that that voice is never going to be able to say because it's a it's a construct right it's interesting talking to you because the the way that some of the reviewers talk about it, talk about it as an evisceration and the rage and stuff makes it sound like a, quite a juvenilian piece of suffering and motivated mm. by the, the, the intention to destroy the target. But you speak of these things with affection and it's a more of a Horatian kind of playful, uh, observational, comedic relationship with the subject. Yeah, I mean, bits of it go quite hard. I mean, uh, I... <laughs> I, I and I think for me that's reading writers like Thomas Bernhard and even Milan Kundera or someone where like they they're pretty merciless when it comes to certain things but that's part of the like comedic theater of their writing for me it's and I would say the same with the Roman satirists actually like yeah yes it is there's an element where it's real but it's also codified and it's also and essentially it's a form of entertainment like it, it's it's they also had to be incredibly careful about what they said right like there, isn't there a phase of marshall's career where he, he sort of had to change his tune because there was a new emperor right and he had to suddenly sort of start saying things that sounded really odd because they weren't the sort of things he was saying before he was saying two years before so i think like we're always dealing with a situation where it's like what's permissible for an artist to say in these situations and like sometimes it is a veiled truth like it is a way of saying something without quite saying what you mean and i'm definitely attempting to do that in some places like yeah saying something in a disguised way where you can tell what i mean but it would be a bit on the nose to say it directly and it would it would it would not resonate i don't think on the subject of identity and when you so when you deal with this, so for example, at the poetry reading, there's a, a suggestion that people are, are more interested in what identity, the identity the person's been able to forge themselves and how they've been able to associate themselves mm. with identity groups. And then it comes back again. I forgot what it's called. You, you have like a version of Twitter in the book, don't you? Um, yeah, um, Locket. Locket, yeah. But it's not like you're angry with the people who participate in this. And even I think there's even the suggestion that the people are mindful that this is happening and are a little bit uncomfortable about it, but have no choice to lean into it. So it's not like the rage is at anyone who's... No, 
involved in it? No, I think it has to be like it's yeah, again more of a like a diagnosis of the system or something, you know, like a you know the way you like run something on your computer to work out why it isn't working. It's sort of something like that. Like try and try and work out what's going on here by examining it. And I think sometimes like the exaggeration was a way of trying to like just see it more clearly, I suppose. Like what if what if I made that assumption where like everything was about I mean I don't if I'm being sober about it I don't believe that but I think that's a way of looking at these event events or I might believe it in certain moods or situations so it's like what if I assume that and then what does it reveal if you make that assumption and, and that's why the having a voice is a fictional voice is so important because you've then got an entity who has that made that assumption and then you can see how it plays out right but yeah no I don't I felt like I there's no there's no sort of it's not really about an individual person's conduct in these situations because I feel like everyone's grappling with a situation which is quite a complicated and confusing one in terms of ideas of presentation and I don't know truth or um, that kind of thing um, the idea of uh, what what's authentic in this kind of situation is is quite a an elusive one so it's sort of just trying to I don't know have the discussion about that I suppose going to say so we've mentioned already and it keeps coming up and it comes up all the time in the book that everything seems to have a hollowness to it we have all these instances where things are being performed but it seems like something people aren't engaging with the substance of anything or, or the something has been lost and it's all hmm. from this yeah this performativeness so it's like you've identified lots of symptoms but what is your diagnosis what, what is the what's gone what's led to this situation where nothing is has any full meaning well, I think there's an anxiety about that. It's a culture. I mean, it goes back to modernism, really, right? That, that there's a there's an anxiety that we're living in a kind of afterlife of meaning. That that everything's been everything important has been done, or everything, all of the um, all of the grand narratives have been concluded in a way. Like things have happened, and we're now in this strange like revision phase of of what's happened and we're, and we're going over it in ever more convoluted and sort of metaphysical ways. Like we're, we're, we're no longer dealing with the primary scenario, if you like. So I think it's, it's a, it's an anxiety that, that technology produces to an extent that we, we have a vast amount of resources or data that, that tell us where we are and who we are and what situation we're in. And I think that has the effect of um, a feeling like, well, we're in this sort of reflective moment, you know, um, an idea that that I, I liked that I encountered from science, which I'm probably misunderstanding, was a holographic reality, where like the, the entire of the universe is sort of stored on a surface. And what we live in is a sort of is a sort of projection of that information, basically. And quite a lot of the way I approached this was like that, um, that perhaps that's what contemporary life feels like in a way that we're living in a sort of space that has been projected or like, um, yeah, uh, by all of the information that is already there. And we can't help but like live out the the prescriptions and patterns and narratives that have been repeated so many times already. Right. And so I suppose that, that, you know, it, it seems natural to, to wonder about what a meaningful action in that situation is. 
Like, is the meaningful action to, to diverge from those? Like, I had a friend who's a novelist and, and he was wondering about how to end his book. And like, one way would be that the, the couple get together. And the other way would be that they wouldn't get together. And he was erring on the side of they would get together at the end, they would kiss. And he was, and someone, another friend was like, well, that's a, that's a cliche. And he was like, yeah, but the other one's a cliche as well. You know, <laughs> like, like to diverge and to, to adhere are both things that have previously decided meanings, if you like. So I suppose that's a long winded way of not answering your question. No, I think it does answer. It sounds to me like the point is more what if we're living in the time when uh, after uh, after anything that was ever going to mean anything could really really continues to and what if we're just thrashing about in the last bits where nothing, nothing well the romans had this as well right yeah, yeah, i mean it's interesting th- like the roman satirists were living in a similar moment like a, a yeah. well we don't know but an empire on the cusp of decline really like yeah. a, a mouldering empire that was like losing power and and the like evaporation of meaning was a and decadence and waste was a, a problem or was a was a subject that they returned to a lot so i feel like there are there are indications of that sort right that yeah that that almost every national narrative you can think of in the west is one that sort of seems to be extinguishing itself ingloriously and it feels it feels much more like it's interested in that kind of mood than it is in critiquing individuals for for not being original for being on yeah I'm not really interested in having an agenda on this like I, I'm just here if you like and and I feel like just reflecting on it is I I've never really felt like I want to have a, a a stance on that the, another way of looking at this is that a lot of these there are plenty of issues that are alive and are and do need to be thought about, but they seem to be ones of readdressing balances and that kind of things, which which which, if you sort of mean, presupposes a massive amount of already existing content, I suppose. Solomon Wise talks about it is plagiarism as though he's almost possessed by the words, isn't he? He's like he's like Roland Barthes' author figure. He's just kind of the word the words come into him, he passes them on. Oh yeah, yeah. It's Harry. Which character? Sorry, Solomon Wife talks about. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's sort of involuntary plagiarist. Yeah, um, but I think, yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of Marshall again now because he coined the term plagiarism. It meant the stealing of a slave. Interestingly, I have a some sense that, that hmm, this is a slightly different subject, perhaps. But yeah, part part of what the book was, or part of my research if you want to call it that for the book was was thinking about copy, reading about copyright history and and plagiarism and that we we're, we're sort of um we've really naturalized in our thinking about ownership of texts but but of course it's a fairly recent historically speaking i mean the romans had no copyright it, it was a concern that people were copying them but they did that in like marshall has a poem where he says if this poem doesn't fit in with the rest of the poems around it, if it seems a lot better than the poems around it, then this poem has been plagiarised. You know, so sort of got sort of, um, you know, like when when someone puts a, uh, in dictionaries, didn't they used to put in fake words so that if someone copied the dictionary, they could be like, well, I made this word up. So I know that you've copied my dictionary. There's sort of like tricks, like ways to catch out um, people who were stealing work. But um that's to digress. Yeah, I feel like um, plagiarism and rewriting or um, repurposing or recycling is is a big part of writing. 
And I think we, this is again, and I think this connects up to what you were saying about reviewers as well, making quite like direct claims about what the text is doing. And I think that's just because that's what they have to do. They're reviewers. They have to make a case for something in quite a short space of time. And I think similarly, our understanding of originality, which is like something that you'll see whacked on the, you know, the cover of almost any book. Like it's a word that sort of has enormous um, promise, but no real currency or something. It's like, what does it, what does it really mean? So I, I think we have like a, a simplistic under, or like a popularly simplistic understanding of what like originality or, or copying is. And this is being played out at the moment quite interestingly in loads of ways. I mean, again, it's because of technology that we can spot these things very easily now. And there have there were there was sort of five years ago or seven years ago a sort of slew of um, poetry plagiarism cases that the germ of the idea for the novel came out of that really. Um, but I, I suppose that's something I have, I have a bit more of a definite stance on. I suppose where I feel like um, uh, a lot of writing is is uh, to do with absorbing and feeding back what you've written, what you've read into what you write. I'm not saying that um, writers are just sort of um, composing machines that take in a certain amount of information and then regurgitate something that's a sort of blend of that <laughs> content. But I think like there's a um, sort of alchemy or sort of living process there, which is uh, which is really important. And I think a lot of writers starting out have a lot of anxiety about originality mm. and that that results in like basically two things one of which is that people are very derivative because they're uncomfortable about doing something that's not like something that they haven't read or insufficiently like insufficiently familiar and then yeah sort of um, a, a fear uh, that affects writing in a in a debilitating way about about doing that right but it's like both sides of that coin are a bad outcome for a writer yeah just um wanted to talk about some of the the distinctive kind of formal and structural things that go on in the text i mean mm. there, there are lots of things that are well talking of being original and and doing things that other people aren't doing like the way that characterization works in the text the way you've got like a contents page for the characters um, mm. the use of italic, the rejection of paragraphs. Mm -hmm. how, how do all of those things play a part? Thomas Bernhard's the model for various things. So the no paragraphs is from him. The italics is largely from him. And there's definitely syntactical things that I do with repetition that are, are really direct, directly from Bernhard's writing, basically. It was, it was unclear to me to, to what extent that was successful or legible, I suppose, to if someone was familiar with Bernhard, I suppose, but my, my agent was is Austrian and and knew read Bernhard in German, and so was very familiar with the work. And I, if it was good enough for her, it's good enough for me, basically. Um, so yeah, I mean that was a sort of a, a, an enable. I found Bernhard incredibly addictive to read and infectious, and it was one of those things where you read a voice and then you can't really get the voice out of your head; it's just there, and then. I'm, I don't think my attempt to inhabit that voice is, you know, even 80% there. It, of course, it's less like, it sounds less like Bernhard 
to other people than it does to me because I have a different version of Bernhard in my head to other people. And of course that comes with a risk, but I feel like that's that's something that I sort of wanted there to be enough points there where someone could be like, oh, that's what's going on here if they knew Bernhard. Again, I don't think you need to know him to read the book. Thematically, it isn't even particularly in, indebted to him. It's it's more a stylistic package sort of thing that I've I've used. And and the characters was uh, sort of just wanted to preserve some sense of structure within the novel. So like giving page references to when different characters appear seemed like a fun way to to provide markers mm. for for a reader to be like okay. And they and they seem to be you know they're spread out in a certain way that seems like okay every. 30 to 50 pages there's a new character so um yeah it's funny that when um, i oh sorry i was gonna say when i no, did, no, no. when i did the seminar on this and i said how did everyone get on with the book what did you think someone said i found it hard to read and i was like is that mm. because of the themes is that because it's you know a, a, some say a full-throated attack on on contemporary poetry and they're like no no on my kindle it's really hard to read because it's got no time mm. to chapters yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose that kind of reading on a Kindle adds a different layer to that as well, doesn't it? Because you don't yeah. have the physical turning of the pages in the same way. Yeah, I would say I haven't seen it on a Kindle, but I'm I'm not an e-reader person. So for me, the page is really important, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, as a sort of unit, even though it's it's not it's not up to me where the pages break or anything. But I, when I was writing the book, I laid it out on what I thought would be a, a an about the size of a paperback book. So I had a sense of line length and page length. If I'd just written in A4, I think it would have felt overwhelming. So that was an important formal. I mean, some of this comes from poetry, which is having like or all of it really, like a, a strong formal sense of something is, is quite important for me. So mm. like to have a sense of like what the, okay, I might not have it with what where the story is going to go, but I'll have it with a sense of like uh, the kind of rules that are underpinning the the writing. So there are certain words that I wouldn't use and there there are certain things that like whenever there's a list, the list is alphabetized and whenever there's character, they're always referred to by their full name. And that those kind of things were rules that became like stylistic, like cornerstones or something that mean that it gives the whole thing a feel to me. And uh, I guess coming from poetry, a lot of me feels that like form results in style, but I mean, it would almost say form results in content to an extent that the the formal situation that you set out for yourself, and that might evolve as you write, but it has a, a totally symbiotic or more relationship with what you're actually, the, the content that you're actually, um, the subjects that you're actually writing about. So that was important to to me to, to sort of fix that. It sounds cool almost a hypocritical observation after what I was saying earlier, but having read the book, I think I'm allowed to say it is a really beautiful book. Oh, thank you. So how are you planning to follow this? And do your future plans involve any satirical thrusts? Um, well, I've I've written another poetry book, which is written using AI. So that's, I don't know how satirical it is, but the, I schooled it on a previous book of mine. I liked what you said about there being a satirical atmosphere or mood. And I suppose that's, that's partly what's going on in this new poetry book as well. I think there's definitely a, yeah, I mean, I hesitate to use the word irony because I feel like it's it's used in so many different ways but um almost in the like german romantic sense that like irony would be like a a, a sense of like there's a schlegel quote i really like where he talks about like it, it's like the breath like the, the 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 breath of wind through the writing like 
it sort of brings things to life. Um, and it has that kind of, I, I think for me, like using irony in poetry has that effect. It, it means that there's a sort of expansiveness or like playfulness sense of possibility there rather than just being sarcastic or something. Mm. Um, so that, and, and there are sort of notes for another novel, but it's way too early for me to talk about that. <laughs> Fair enough. That sounds really interesting. That's the end of our questions, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Thanks so much for talking to us, Sam. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on. It's really interesting. I hope we talked about satire enough. I don't know oh, if definitely. we... definitely. Yeah. Sure. Very generous of you. I really appreciate the time you've spent reading and thinking about the book. It's really nice. Thanks. Well, I really enjoyed talking to Sam Rivier. I hope he writes another satirical book so we can talk to him again. Um, is there anything else we need to talk about before we wrap up this edition well i strongly recommend a recent episode of the abc radio public podcast future tense uh, called the future of satire is no laughing matter i bet you do yeah. <laughs> so this i mean it's only half an hour long mm-hmm. it, it does feature an interview with me that is at the start and the end uh, have you listened to it uh, not yet no. no um but yeah it's, but it's very good yeah, well, well, I was going to say, I don't just mean this in a sort of narcissistic, self-promotional way. Okay, like, but you do mean it in that way a bit. Well, I mean, I'd like people to listen to it and tell me if they thought, think I did a good job. Like, Because yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, it's Australian, they had to ring me up at half past seven in the morning the day before I went home for my parents at Oof. Christmas. Um, so I was packing and then I had to, mm. yeah, so I'll, you'll hear me being interviewed at 7.30am. Which is a treat which is, in itself, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, but no, the whole episode, she speaks to, the the, the presenter of it is called um, Ed Wiener, mm-hmm. Ed, um, speaks to lots of experts about satire. And it, I just think it's a really tight, well-constructed thing where basically... <laughs> It summarizes everything we've talked about over thirty-eight episodes. Like the wow. the major, not everything, but like the major top, the major themes, the major questions. Uh, it's really concise. It's quite entertaining as well. All the guests, I can't speak for myself, but the other guests are pretty funny. Like so, Rye. In that case, if listeners who've just discovered this podcast and are listening to this one, mm. maybe they listen to a couple of more recent ones. Would you say it would be a more efficient use of their time to just go listen to that <laughs> if they talk about everything? No, it depends what they want to get from. If you want a scatter shun, I mean, it's a bit similar to our episode one. If you like, it, want a scattergun survey, like the mm. big, what are the big debates that come yeah. up time and time again? Here they all are in half an hour as a list. Yeah. If you want like a deep dive into the nuance and minutiae of it and some entertaining camaraderie, like. And, hedgehog shit and stuff and, like that. Yeah, yeah then yeah. then you should listen to more of this podcast. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, no, I mean, if you like, if you're interested in satire, it's very satisfying and interesting mm. listen. And it gets into other stuff, like it touches on the freedom of speech stuff and the social media mm. angle. And uh, and I I say at one point that the uh, business model for social media is outrage, which right. I think is quite a good quote that just mm. came to me. So um, <laughs> yeah, so that that was good. Is there anything else we need to talk about? Um, I I, I could tell you a joke. Okay. Maybe as good as your joke at the beginning. Yeah. Um, what is Anthony Bridgerton's favourite way to get across a body of water? I don't know. A bridge. Oh. He likes it because it's the same as his name. He does. That's how those that's, kinds of jokes work. That's how good my Because your favourite thing yeah. is always a thing that has some aspect of either your name or what you are in yeah. it, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. I thought you'd say, what is his favourite way of copping a feel? <laughs> It's by releasing <laughs> by a bee. Into yeah. no, um, that, that would no, that wouldn't work because it doesn't have some aspects of his name or. So that was a good joke. That joke yeah. was a satire on my joke at the start. Yeah, and also yeah. a satire on like um, shit jokes on penguin bars and Christmas crackers and so on. Cool. Yeah. Um, what is? Let me think. 
What's Andrew Bricker's favourite kind of shop? A brick shop. A bric-a-brac shop. <laughs> and What's Joe War's uh, favourite kind of... Combat. Yeah. War. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's Adam Smith's favourite kind of crisp that isn't really made anymore? Smith's. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. yeah, so we've got the hang of that It's great, now. isn't it? This is yeah, good, good listening for yeah. everyone at home. So that's uh, that's Yeah, great. so that's a yeah. rap. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is it? Um, what, what's a rap singer's favourite alternative to a sandwich? A rap? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Very yeah. good. Yeah, these. I mean, some of these are quite funny. Yeah. Like, mildly funny. <laughs> Should we? Maybe the next book we do, instead of being scripts, it could be the Smith and War Bumper Christmas Joke book. <laughs> it could be, yeah. And it could be just a really long list of like jokes like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What's a podcaster's favourite fishing move? Casting your pod? Yes. What? What? What is it that you Casting your, your line? rod. Casting your oh, rod. Oh, you cast your rod? Yeah. Right, okay. Rodcaster. Yeah, rodcast, podcast, very good. Smith and War um, talk about rodcasters. That's our, that's our fishing podcast that we can do one time. What's a podcaster's favourite vegetable? Uh, pod potato. <laughs> no, no, that would work. No, it's peas, and the reason why they like them is because they can and sometimes do come in a pod. Oh. Yeah, yeah so they just like they just like anything with the word pod in it. That's what they're that's yeah. what they're like. Yeah, um, that, that's that you give them anything that sounds like or is a pod. Yeah, and a podcaster will always be be really happy and and content. Especially if it's their podcast anniversary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what's what's Will Smith's favourite member of this podcast? Adam Smith. Yeah, it's you. Yeah, yeah. he absolutely hates me. Yeah. yeah. What What does Chris Rock always do first when you play a game of scissors, paper, rock? Rock. He always does rock. rock. Yeah. 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 And it's also a good way to fend Will Smith off if he's coming at him to slap him. Yeah. He just does rock. Yeah. In fact, if he if he's ever accused of like punching anybody, he just says, "No, I was playing rock paper scissors and I so was you, doing my rock." You said what free thing could we send people if they uh, we could don't send go them the Smith the War Bump for Christmas joke <laughs> we could or just, yeah. just, just riffing on this for yeah. a tight well that's it. already happened now hasn't yeah. it and everyone's had it for free but I'm yeah. sure we could think of more we could <laughs> we could make a joke for all the people with their name in it can we so if somebody called like um, I don't know Annabelle um, what's the surname that somebody might have <laughs> I don't know, what, what's uh, the surname? If, if somebody was called Annabelle Moore, for yeah, example, yeah, and yeah. they, um, you know, they, they signed up, we'd yeah. say, like, what's Annabelle Moore's favourite aspect of the general set of associations with the Bronte sisters? It's the mm, Moores. Or Annabelle Moore Annabelle loves Moore's 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 Annabelle Moore only ever wants to hear about Moores. She likes to walk on the Moors. She, she always wants more of everything yeah, because that's her name. What's Annabelle yeah. Moore's favourite French emotion? Amor. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's what we'll do. Yeah. So if you and not, she likes bells too. If you don't get a free book, still fill the survey, and we will incorporate we'll your you name joke. into a joke. We'll and do it will it be almost as good as the ones we've just done now. Yeah, yeah. Right, we'll do that then. Yeah. Is there <laughs> anything else we need to talk about? We just need to tell people what to do if they've been impacted by the podcast. Well, go on the Twitter. Mm-hmm. At satire no more. Yeah, yeah. Instagram. Go, go on the Instagram. I can never remember what that is. At talk about satire. At talk about satire. Um, email us satire no more at gmail dot com. Yeah. Yeah, um, please do let us know. Almost certainly get round to checking that at some point. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, but mainly just keep listening, like and subscribe, tell your friends, and, uh, <laughs> and leave us a positive review. Oh yeah, you should leave us yeah. on your on your platform of choice. Do leave us a 
positive review because yeah. we've got that battle going on, haven't we, between zero point two percent? We've had two reviews ever. So if anyone wants to leave yeah, us a review, well, friends, to aren't be they? fair, that yeah. we're aware of, there's loads of platforms that we don't check. I only ever check. Oh, Anchor. you think they're all on? There like, could be like we could have loads of podcasts or something. We could have loads on iTunes. I've never checked. Uh, we don't. Okay. <laughs> um, well, then please do help yeah. us get some positive reviews on yeah. platforms. It would be nice to expand our reach. Yeah. And share the satire. Spread the, spread the word. Is there anything else we need to talk about? Uh, no, I don't, don't think so. I'm so tired, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Right yeah, then. Do you remember, there was something else we used to say apart from sit up, shut up and eat our satire. Goodbye, listeners. Goodbye. No, it was a thing that we used to say in the early ones. I can't remember what it was. Oh, well, never mind. Um, <laughs> Sit up. If only there was some way to find out what we used to say in the old episode. <laughs> no, yeah. no, there isn't. It's all gone. It's all disappeared. That's um, an end to it. Okay. Yeah. Sit up. Shut up. And eat our satire. Goodbye, listeners. This is the bit where we'd say something. Like, not not just bye, but something else. Never mind. Goodbye, listeners. Bye. Bye. They'll have to find their own way.